0: hey what is going on everyone welcome to another episode of adventures in devops i'm your host for today will button and along with me we have our esteemed panels panelists, panels panel hosts panel something
1: (laughs) something like that
0: yeah how about i just skip that part we have jonathan hall hi and jillian Rowe.
1: hello
0: and shimon tolts hi everyone it's great to be here on and then today we have our special guest in the hot seat ready for grilling we're going to get all the knowledge we can out of him abhinav dasmana hey thank you will My pleasure. Thanks for being on the show with
2: us. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there, too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. So do you want to give everyone like a little brief introduction?
3: Sure. So uh, currently I'm working as a senior staff engineer at Freshworks. I primarily work in uh, platform services, essentially, which means uh, I work on teams which power all the other products that I get. Freshworks, you can think in terms of, you know, Kafka, email, login, and all those kind of stuff. Uh, and yeah, so yeah, I'm I'm really excited to be
0: here. Right on! This is going to be a great conversation. So we were reading your article on getting 15,000 messages per second through Kafka. Is that right?
3: That's correct.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's um. If you don't mind, can you give us a, like a high level overview of what Kafka is? Like, where would we expect to see that in the infrastructure? Sure.
3: So if you look at it from outside, essentially Kafka is a pub subsystem. You essentially publish message to a topic and the consumer then can consume from these topics when they are free. So means as, as any distributed system, you would like to decouple as much as you can, right? From your uh, producer and consumer. So that's where Kafka comes in. So that's the primary purpose where, you know, a service can come in and say, Hey, I've done X, right? And then your workflow can kick in based on a certain event and you can take actions. Uh, the consumer can take actions on those and uh, move into the next step of the
4: process.
0: Right on. So that's it's very similar to like RabbitMQ or AWS ElastiCache. Would that be a fair statement? Right, so the
3: slight difference is that when you look at any queue, right, essentially the moment you read a message from the queue, it's gone, right? Uh, That Mm -hmm. means you only have one consumer for one event at a time. However, that's not the case with Kafka, right? In Kafka, you push a message and you can retain this message for as long as you want, right? It could be days, months, or for that matter, years or forever, right? As long as you want to pay for the storage, we are good. So, and, you know, uh, that way, if you want to go back and look you know, one week back and say, Hey, what happened? I have some problem. You can go back and reach and replay those messages from that point of time.
0: Right on.
5: Yeah. But uh, the difference, I think, in my mind, uh, between like a queue, let's say RabbitMQ. As compared to a stream like Kafka is it brings more challenges because you need to control the state by yourself. So you need to use like Storm or some uh, platform in order to keep the state of the messages. Is that right? Did you mean? So yeah, so it's essentially a state of a consumer, right?
3: So when you start consuming, uh, what Kafka is was typically, you know, there's offsets, right? Essentially each message is an offset and you have to know to what time it's essentially what message you have read so far but it's all uh i mean depending on your performance needs uh, a typical consumer can auto commit on your own behalf if you want to tweak your performance you know you can you know do it asynchronously as well so depending on the needs and the performance uh, we can change that feature But most of it is pretty, uh, it's not that difficult.
5: But I guess if you have a distributed system and you have multiple workers, you need to sync the state between them because otherwise you're going to pull the same message, right? No. So essentially all this is taken care
3: of. So essentially think about a topic has multiple partitions, right? So let's say a topic has 50 partitions. When you decide to start a consumer, at max you can have 50 consumers, right? Because each consumer can get only one. But you can have five also, ten also, right? You don't have to go to the maximum 50. And this is all taken care of. If one consumer dies, essentially Kafka will auto-rebalance for you and a new message will be assigned.
0: Right on. What led you to... Uh, was this like a, an effort to see how many messages you could get through Kafka? Or was this like a need? What was dri- the driving factor behind this?
3: Right. So we are actually uh, transitioning from uh, from an old legacy system to the new system where uh, we are moving system to our Kafka and we are building this in house so we wanted to check what is the throughput our system can take right like we have to do the performance testing you know whether we can sustain this for you know the period of time that we have to store messages so that's where my quest started to you know you uh, know experiment with this
0: right on i think that's there's like a little hidden gem in there like you're moving over to this and then you stop to take the time to load test and performance test this before cutting your production services over to that. And that takes a lot of time and effort, but I think that level of discipline is not as common as what it should be. So I think that's super cool that that you went this route.
3: Yeah, I mean, in any uh, hardware uh any this works like a message bus if this goes down essentially all the product that are building on top of it goes down so <laughs> i don't think you, you have an option you don't have an option to not test it well oh there's oh, always, you an always option have to that not option.
1: test <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm surprised that you think that, uh, well, that it's not used as much as possible, because I know I've been in a lot of meetings where like, you know, the IT department is like, yes, we get to try to break the new system. And the other people are like, oh, God, who are these people that we've hired? You know, like, what's going on here? <laughs> I think the IT people always like doing that. So I think that's neat. So what, is, what exactly does Freshworks, you said you're at Freshworks, right? So that's what this was tested for. What are you guys doing there that you're using a message queue system for? And I imagine you want some kind of event driven architecture, right?
3: Right. Essentially for everything, I don't think there's any team that does not use it. So it's like a central. So that means essentially we call this service as central. So my team does two things, right? One is we are providing and maintaining the Kafka cluster. And we also provide, I've built a top rest proxy on top of this Kafka cluster so that if you want to push messages, you don't have to worry about all the internals of Kafka, right? You provide an HTTP endpoint, which you can hit and we take care of writing that data on your on your behalf to Kafka. That's what the team does. And I think, I, I don't know if there's any product that doesn't use it <laughs> within Freshworks.
0: Nice.
5: So I have a couple of questions. So back in my day, I also ran a data pipeline that was processing lots of requests. We were actually using AWS Kinesis, which used to be the only... So I'm interested to hear, number one, why you chose Kafka. And number two, from reading your article, it seems like you actually... Manage it on ec two instances, right. so that's a whole other topic <laughs> I can talk to you about. So, what made you choose Kafka? Let's start with that. Uh, I
3: think there was some analysis done in terms of both expertise that we have in house and also in terms of cost. That what will it take at at a few so, you know few terabytes of data flow into our uh, system per day, and you know uh, approximately three to five times flow out from our system so based on the scale based on the cost analysis and based on what we know some of the expertise that we have in-house we wanted to
5: do in-house i see so okay so i see that you run zookeeper on on docker containers but kafka do you actually install it on ec2 instances as so we we do uh, we started with uh,
3: docker and that's what i think most of the blog writes about but we ended up in the final form, we ended up installing raw on EC2. Yeah.
5: Wow! And I know that Amazon offers a hosted service now yeah. of Kafka. Mm-hmm. Did yeah. you try it? Like, why? It's very interesting to hear you have such a big setup. Like, is it cost? Is it performance? Mm-hmm. Why did you choose to run it? A, I can. Uh, you
3: know, I think they call it MKA. It's pretty new as such. But anything that, uh, in my opinion, which is a managed service, right? You don't directly get, if something goes wrong, essentially all you can do is raise a support ticket and wait for a very, very long time for things to get right, (laughs) right? And we have seen this in the past where uh, if things go wrong, they do a cluster rollover, they are doing an update, right, whatever. So you don't have that kind of a control. If you're, you know, if you're with a very, really good one, then it you might not affect. Get affected by it, but we have been a victim where, you know, where is our peak traffic time and somebody decided to do a cluster rollover, right? And if you have a five minute downtime, essentially five downtime across our product. So we wanted to, you know, we have, we run clusters in different geographies so we can, you know, run and update during our downtime rather than somebody else's downtime. That's one. And I think there was some, I think cost analysis as well. Uh, there was some decision as well that we would like to host all the services in house. So. Something that is, you know, uh, that's a decision at a uh, much higher than what 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 I know. So, but yeah, we did some analysis, and I, we thought that it's not that difficult to you know, do this on our own.
5: Makes sense. Makes sense. You know, I work a lot with AWS. Mm-hmm. First of all, it makes sense. I, I know personally a company, and they had this problem okay. when the Kafka got stuck, and then you wait a ticket, and you basically. <laughs> So they happened to call me because I know people from AWS and then I called them and it's, it's it sounds like, you know, a small dev shop and then they, they did the ticket, but you're like to the mercies of High uh, Mary. But another question that I want to ask, you said that you, your blog says that you run it on M5 instances. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to hear why did you choose this instance type as opposed to maybe IO-optimized instance types or memory-optimized. It's also an interesting choice.
3: Right. So I, mean, I tried to read a lot about that if you know, I can find any documentation on what instance type does Kafka or even Confluent recommends. Uh, I couldn't find any. So what what i found two things right one is that kafka uh, is not very heavy on cpu you don't need a very high compute however if you have more memory that's slightly better uh, because it can buffer messages on top of it so that's those are the two things uh, that we chose m5
1: yeah
5: i can ask 7000 more questions <laughs> about the infrastructure so i'm just trying to give you space <laughs> 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 because I, I, I really can go down to every bolt and bolt of what they use because to me, it's interesting. Back at my time, I'll I'll tell you a funny story. So I was running the uh, infrastructure division at a company and we were using, we started with RabbitMQ and then we migrated to Kinesis, which is similar to Kafka. And we were doing uh, those, those processing of, of messages. We had 200 billion messages a month. And one time, we, we encountered a, a very big problem where we, we couldn't ingest a, at the speed of the stream because the workers were working slow. Then we started adding more and more workers. And as we added more and more workers, the system started working slower and slower and slower. You're like, what is going on? We're throwing more infrastructure at it and it's just, yeah. <laughs> and it's still not working adding
1: more workers in what like uh, uh, it was it seemed like such a good idea at the time kind of classic
5: problem <laughs> absolutely absolutely and you know at the end of the day what happened is that all of the workers were doing deduplication of messages using a redis cluster and this redis cluster ran out of memory and started working from swap <laughs> and when that happened adding even more workers only made it worse because then they they bombarded the Redis trying to get even more messages and it went even deeper into Swap. And It took us so long time to find this. It was absolutely crazy. It's always this one weird service at the, at the side that does something not that important that screws everything the up. The one that everyone's forgotten about. Yes. After that incident, no matter what problem we had, everyone went to check the Redis first. Like, is it the Redis? Second, like, no, it's not the Redis. It's not the Redis. That's it. It's not going to happen anymore. A
3: similar thing can happen in Kafka if you have you know, open file handlers. If you don't have enough open file handlers, your whole cluster goes down. And it's just not too easy to figure out why your system just comes up and goes down.
5: Cool. So, so what libraries do you use in order to consume from Kafka? You're a Java shop? Or um, what do you use?
3: Uh, all across the places. We have Java, Python, Ruby, Go. <laughs> I think everything is there.
5: So the applicative teams, each one like, can read the topic and then they can use whichever client they want? Right. So uh,
3: we do handle security via ACLs, right? So we give... Uh, So you have a username and password and you can only create, you know, consumer groups, either absolute or by the prefix. So you protect that only you can create this with this consumer group and you have those set of privileges.
5: I see. So you're like, as the, as a centralized team, you're responsible for the Kafka itself. You have teams that send data and feed this Kafka and you have teams that consume the data. And then you have segregation of duties and, and teams and, and they just consume this That's
1: infrastructure. Good. That's
5: good. That's good. Cool. So so how do you do sizing in that matter? For example, you have so many teams. How do you know how, how many instances of Kafka do you have? <laughs> right. So it's always
3: a challenge. As I mentioned, there are two parts, right? One, we also have a uh, risk proxy when it comes to production, right? That so we know what kind of a throughput to expect to which topic. That's one. Second, also uh, we, we don't have it yet, but Kafka provides quotas as well through which we can restrict the data that you can consume, all produced, right? So we can apply that. We haven't got the need yet, but it's Kafka has that feature as well.
5: Sounds good.
0: What were some of the big so, um, learnings from scaling this out? Was there anything like once you reached this point? Was there anything where you're like, oh man, I wish somebody would have told me that in the beginning?
3: That's a very good question. Uh, <laughs> I think one thing. Uh, that we have realized being in production that we don't have an answer to is that what happens if the underlying disk fails. We have had that happen where, you know, you are persisting your data on an EBS volume uh, which is outside of and that EBS is unresponsible of saddle drive. And uh Ideally, means Kafka has a system where they try to you know, allocate and maintain the leader. But if that disk goes down, essentially those partitions go down as well. That's I haven't found anywhere any solution. If you guys know, <laughs> let me know. But th- that's my biggest threat. So, how what we have done is essentially we have tried to have smaller instances uh, with more disks so that we minimize our risk of any single you know disk going down that's uh, earlier i thought that if we make you know let's say you have only nine clusters or 12 cl- 12 node cluster that's fine but i would rather have you know a 24 node cluster with smaller you know uh, this so that if they fails essentially only a certain part of the system goes down and they're not a bigger part of the system is affected. Gotcha.
5: I remember that like one of the challenges that we had is like how do you how do you provide dev and test environments to the teams that work on this cluster? So do you have like dev cluster, dev two, dev three, QA cluster? Like, right. Do do? So
3: we have uh, a dev and QA cluster where you can connect. We have one which essentially we provide uh, for. People on Dev behind a VPC to connect as well, so that they can test from their local laptop as well. But then we have yeah, what you call a QA, where you can do some form of a testing before prod rollout, and then we have production across different regions.
5: Cool. So from your side, maybe tell us a little bit more about what Freshwork does, and then will be like, and maybe the applicative use cases of like wh- what you actually put in those queues, so it will help us understand your use case. Right. So as I said, right, everybody
3: uses. Uh, kafka here. Uh, so what freshfunk does, uh, I don't think I'm the right person. Uh, it has been only in a year that I've been here, but it provides a B2B software. FreshTest is its main product. There are other things, uh, other products as well. Uh, but essentially at uh, at my team, we actually don't care what is the input and what is the output of the data. Uh, what we are only concerned is in uh, that this data comes in my job is to put in here and somebody has to consume it as long as I can provide with enough throughput to read and write. (laughs) I I don't don't want to look at the data privacy,
5: please.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's an excellent policy.
0: (laughs) For sure.
5: It's like uh, there is this joke where there's like a German scientist and they come to him and they tell him there is a problem with the rockets. They're landing in the wrong places. And he says, it is not in my department. I only make them fly. I don't decide where to go down. (laughs) No, but it makes sense. I I can understand. It's like a broad infra team. So another question about your setup. So are you running in one region or several regions? And if so, do you split it by availability zones, and how do you deal between the latencies between the different uh, topics and nodes? Right. So we have
3: different regions, but those serve different clients itself, right? So, however, within a single region, we deploy in at least three, right, uh, uh, AZs. And uh, what we what Kafka also has is what they call rack awareness, essentially. When a when a message comes in, it will not be acknowledged. At least, it's written to one another AZ, right? And uh, as a replication factor, it's written to all three AZs. So by this, uh, the system is designed to work perfectly if uh, one of the AZs goes down. And uh, but we are thinking, especially in regions which are which have more AZs, especially in US, East one and other places where we can have you know uh, because it has I think six AZs. So we have. Plans in place, how we can you know uh, support even two or three AZs going down. It's just that with more things, it will come. You know, uh, we'll have to worry about the cost and all of that. But yeah, AWS is famous for its <laughs> data transfer prices. So yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> so yeah. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software. And what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free fourteen-day trial with plans starting from as little as four dollars per month.
5: So if you touched on 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 this topic, do you uh English. <laughs> <don't... Or> <laughs> So do you, do you leverage like spot instances or, or stuff like that? Because it seems like uh, the Kafka power is that it replicates it several times, the, the messages and the information. So you might leverage, you know, spot instances to reduce your costs or spot fleet. Or do you use any of that? Uh, not for Kafka. right? We
3: want those brokers to run all the time. You don't want them... If a broker goes down, right, there's a cost associated with, you know, assigning the leaders to other brokers. That we don't want. That's not the case, right? So we don't.
5: Ah, so you, maybe you go the other way, like by reserved instances, yeah. because you know they're going to be always on. Okay. Yes. So makes sense. So maybe the. So on the other hand, maybe the consumers can run as spot instances because they can consume it and right. it is always in Kafka. So correct,
3: correct. Way. So it means uh, that's up to the teams depending, you know, how much uh, throughput there. So essentially it's a TCP connection that a client makes with the Kafka server. So if you want to break it and come back again. So again, if you have a very low throughput topic, maybe you can do that, but. Most of the time, uh, people do use a persistent connection to consume. Only in case of a surge, right? If they want to get a new one, like you know, uh, only in those
1: cases they use that. Yeah. I want to know about the site reliability stuff going on. I saw the uh, your really pretty Grafana chart mm-hmm. up at the top of the blog post, and that was, yeah. you know, that was what I'm all about. So, how are you guys? Were you doing that just for benchmarking, or do you have like a you know, are you kind of a Prometheus Grafana stack? So I feel like some people are on the Prometheus Grafana and some people are on the Elk stack, and I still don't really understand why people want to ch- choose one or over the other. So maybe you can shed some light on this topic for me.
3: Right. So internally, Kafka is really good in emitting JMX metrics, and internally we have a separate team that takes care of Grafanas and man- and managing that for us. So it was an obvious choice for us to you, you know use those JMX metrics and push it to a team which can help us in, you know, in this promises, we have
4: on I want to talk a little bit about scaling the other direction, because that's kind of my focus is is really small teams. If you were <laughs> to get started with Kafka, what would you recommend for somebody? Maybe they've never done it. Maybe they, Maybe it's a startup and they only have a small team. They're not doing much data yet, but they expect to grow. Mm-hmm. You probably aren't handling 15,000 events per second yet. Uh, may, maybe a few hundred or, uh, you know, maybe that's all. Uh, where would you get started in that area uh, with the idea that you might grow later?
3: Right, so means if you have such small system,
4: uh, maybe just
3: use SNS and SQS way of mechanism of handling a fully managed system. But if you want to go with Kafka, uh, you can scale linearly essentially the system scales. So essentially if you want to add uh, if, you can start with just three nodes, right? And you can have a replication factor of uh, three uh, uh data comes in and you know you just replicate at three places so you can just start with bare three minimum of Kafka notes and three minimum of zookeeper nodes and your system can be up and running and they can provide a very very high throughput right to a certain extent and then if you want to add uh, essentially i would recommend add in three pairs because uh, the moment you add three more uh now you are, your data can now again replicate and support one easy down. If you add only one, essentially now you are at a. the topics that live in this uh, machine are more like, means if this easy goes down, you have more likely to be affected. So that's, uh, yeah, that's how you can go about it. Add in a pair of three and move forward. Okay. Yeah. Good. The one thing is it's very hard to reduce the cl- cluster size in Kafka. So it's better to, you know, <laughs> just start with small and then increase rather than go the other way around.
5: Yes, sharding is terrible. (laughs) Yeah.
4: So, what do you do if you do want to downsize? Is there some way to like reshard everything, like build a new cluster and reshard and re-inject the data, or how do you do that if if you have to?
3: No, you you don't have to build a new cluster. You can so the the way it works essentially, you can tell Kafka cluster to say, "Hey, I so let's say assume we have six nodes, right? So, and each." Partition, essentially, some note, some partition would be leader on, let's say, 4, 5, and 6, right? Now, what you want to say, hey, I don't want any leader to be on 4, 5, and 6, right? And I don't want any replica on 4, 5, and 6. So there's a utility uh, inbuilt with Kafka that you can assign it to say, hey, do this, remove these 4, 5, and 6. That so generates a plan for you, then we'll copy all the data from these servers to new servers. It will do a rollover. It's pretty expensive in terms of uh, the effort, but if you want, um, and it can be done, but it's not, it's not pretty.
4: It's not something you do for fun.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Good.
0: So you yeah. mentioned earlier about running the data on EBS volumes and the risk of when you lose that volume. Have you tried? mounting multiple ebs volumes and then putting them into a raid array on that ec2 instance
3: we haven't done that yet uh, to
0: yeah yeah i but know it's possible i've never done it i don't know what the performance of that is but um if it if it actually I, i've read some stuff saying that you know you actually gain io benefits because you're spreading it across getting the benefits of multiple ebs volumes but um i've never actually done it myself to know if it's something you would like doing or not.
3: Yeah, I mean, so I, I think when I started with Kafka, I was exploring, but I couldn't find enough literature to be confident of deploying Kafka with RAID. So yeah. decided not gotcha. to go gotcha. with that. Yeah.
0: Gotcha.
5: Yeah, but it can increase performance. But on the other hand, as you talked about, it price <laughs> and data transfer price. No, it's, it's interesting. It's like now with the cloud, you know, it's like it stopped being just performance. It's always performance end cost, because maybe you can squeeze more performance, but it's going to cost you so much that just putting in, just throwing more money might be cheaper than improving the performance and and vice versa. But I remember when we looked at it, doing a raid with EBSs and also mounting uh, using the NFS uh, service of AWS, which is slower, but it is very, very consistent. So Abhinav, my question to you is, do you store the data that you process in Kafka before putting it into the queue or after, like in S3 or some other places? So if you have a data outage, you can restore it and replay it. No. So the, what we have is that any,
3: we have a limit on how much, uh, bigger a message can be, right? Because Kafka is not very performant if you have, you know, uh, really big messages because it can block your queue, right? So when any message comes to the risk proxy and we look at if the data size after being compressed has more than one MB, essentially we put that object to S3 and put the link into that uh, message so that oh, nice. uh, anybody who wants to consume can come back and copy from that. Uh, we don't have many uh, use cases, so that have a payload of more than one MB after compression. But if, if that is, if some team wants to use it, we do have that feature. But so by me, to answer that question, essentially, uh, what we are experimenting right now is that, that how we can, you know, provide higher availability when the Kafka cluster is down, right? And what we are trying to do is that if we f- try and figure out if our, we are not able to push message to Kafka, essentially we push uh, the message to SQS, right? And then we have a separate service which can listen from this queue and push it back to Kafka. So this increases oh, yeah. our availability.
0: Yeah. So you're using SQS as like your your backup and failover store for Kafka?
3: That's correct, yes.
0: Right on. Yeah.
3: We hope we never have to use it, but... <laughs> 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 uh, <yeah. laughs>
5: The cost of SQS mm-hmm. is ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous. If you push everything, you're going to go bankrupt. <laughs> really. <laughs> it's crazy. That, that's All right, I need to I hear mentioned. More
1: about this because I've been thinking <laughs> about using SQS with the uh, S3 event notifications because I'm starting to dive into this event notification. So I need you guys to educate on the, me on this before I have some really crazy bill. So
5: if you have less than billions of messages, it's not a problem. Okay. But if you have billions of messages, it is a big problem. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I have found sometimes the AWS ex- like services are so expensive. Like I was using the Elastic, uh, the Elastic Search, Managed AWS service and. It was so expensive and I was so sad. <laughs>
5: but you know, I, I really love AWS, but I also get to work with Azure and Google cloud. And the interesting part is that Google cloud has their service bus, which starts as a queue and then like auto scales into a stream. If you, pa- pu- if you like pass a certain amount of messages, which is actually nice because, uh, well, Abhinav doesn't like it because you're then, you know, you're with the cloud <laughs> and you need to open service okay. tickets. But on the other hand, you get the simplicity, and it just works for you, and it reduces the cost for you. So, of course, it's always flexibility versus simplicity, and, and then you need to find what works best for you, I guess. Cool. So what's next for your uh, Kafka infrastructure? Where are you going to take it to the next level? What is going to happen?
3: So the first thing that we are doing, as I mentioned, right, experimenting with this SQS um, and how we pull it back to Kafka. The problem that we would face in certain scenarios is that strict ordering of messages would be lost, right? The moment the cluster comes back up, essentially the messages that have gone to SPS, if you replay them, essentially the ordering of messages lost. And for some teams right like if you're looking about chat or anything do, for those it might not be the right use case we are just figuring out if we should clear the queue first or then start replaying and all of that so how we can essentially increase the availability to a, a really high number like like nines or five nines uh, of the whole system so that's uh, where
4: our next focus is what's your track record for the reliability so far oh uh, for the
3: cluster itself we are uh, uh close to five nines. Uh the only incident we have had so far is when one of the EBS uh failed in instance. But other than that, even we have gone through a few expansion cycles, right? In piece of a node from you know, double the nodes from the what we had originally, and uh we, yeah, we were able to do it
4: without any downtime. Good. Yeah. Those last nines are always the most expensive nines, aren't they? Right. <laughs> right, right. So
3: again, yeah. like, we we are looking at if we can how do we provide dr right uh, if dr it means the whole region comes down do we, should we have the dr but again when you're talking about terabytes of data per day the cost is just you know uh, it doesn't at some point it doesn't make sense so we are just evaluating all of that uh, <laughs> what to do with this mm-hmm.
5: jonathan i totally agree with you you know it's it's so interesting uh, like a couple of years back microsoft they invited me and some other like CTOs and you know tech people to to go to like an Azure data center tour. I don't think Amazon would ever do that. Like no one knows where the Amazon center <laughs> is, and like even Jeff Bezos can't go in. They have special badges, okay? But Microsoft did it. So uh, it was in uh, Washington. And, like, we took a bus from Seattle and, like, drove and drove and drove and drove to the middle of nowhere, started seeing, like, cows and and stuff. And then we got to, like, I call it the data center city. And then we, we get into the data center city, and then they tell us, we're going to show you the, they didn't call it legacy, but the current data center, and we're going to show you the future. And we're like, okay. And then there's this drill sergeant and he goes like, hello, I will be your tour guide. And you see that he served in the military for a very long time. And then we come in and then he starts explaining, okay, listen, when you come in on the left, there is going to be a very big red button. Do not press it. Do not press it. It will shut down the entire data center. Do not press it. And I'm like, Okay. And then we start going in and he's standing like this with his hands open. He's like, keep going, keep going, keep going. Don't stop here. Don't stop here. And then we, we go and see the tour. And then he tells us this is like a five nines data center. So we, we see like, so every rack has a UPS. And then he shows us there is a room with the, with like batteries, like car batteries, which are like a, how do you call it? Like car UPS? I don't know. Like, like car batteries. And then, We got into a huge room with 18 generators. And and he goes like, this is the five nines. So (laughs) you get the UPS, you get the the car batteries, and then you get the generators, which like each one costs a million dollars. And there are like 18 of them. So He goes like, okay. I was like, okay, now I'll show you the future. And then he starts explaining. The future has only three nines because we're not, (laughs) so I'm going to, so what happened to the other two nines? we like, no, this is all done with software now. The two other nines went into software. And then we go out and then we stand and in front of us, there's like, they're like containers. And he goes like, this is it. And we're like, where is it? It's like, this is it. And it's just literally standing outside. It's a very cold weather. And then they only pump in air because it's super cold and they connect electricity and internet into it. And then they say, like, the the redundancy is going to be done via software. And not only that, they also have a certain percentage of, like, blades that die inside the container. And unless it goes below, like, 95% or something, they're not even going to fix it. (laughs) So it's very interesting to see. That's a small story about how I visited the data center.
4: I, I remember reading probably 10 years ago, even, that Google was experimenting with un-air-conditioned uh, data centers with this exact idea in mind, that by saving money on air conditioning costs, they would definitely have more hard drive and CPU failures and stuff like that. But they were experimenting. I don't remember the, the outcome of the, the experiment, but they were experimenting with this idea. You know, If we save money on air conditioning, we know we'll have more hardware failures, but is it cheaper to replace broken hardware than to run the air conditioner?
5: That's a great question. By the way, in the same thing, so what happens is this data center, the legacy data center, is by a lake. And actually, what they do is they connect to the lake and then they pump in like cold water. It goes into the data center, it cools it, and then they pump back the hot water. And then they get in a way like cooling for free because it's just running water on a river. Let's hope those fish like a warm bath.
1: Yeah, I was about to say, what is the effect on the ecosystem there? Like, I wonder. uh,
0: We don't ask those questions around here. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, I
1: guess not. <laughs> like, you got to wonder when they start throwing data centers in the Arctic, just how much we're going to be speeding up global warming and things. I don't know. Then we all move to space. It'll be fine. Great.
0: Right. I mean, at the, bare, at the bare minimum, you could at least use like clear water tubing so that as the fish go through, they can see <laughs> the servers. You know, like a, it'd be like Disneyland for fish. Like, Nemo,
1: sure, you have to the, the data, data center,
0: center. <laughs> right? It's like, oh my god,
5: it's Space Mountain. I love this place.
0: So this is why Chuck will never let me host the show anymore.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I really believe in like uh, you know distributed computing. There are there are projects where like you can donate your your like empty cycles for science. And I believe that there are like so many computers running with like no CPU utilization, no nothing. And that's just, and we can all leverage that for sure. I think there are like so much wasted resources out there that we could leverage.
0: SETI had that screensaver for a long time.
4: I used to run, it was before SETI at home was popular. It was was folding, uh, a protein folding thing. I did that for a while.
1: Was that one back the on. one on the PlayStation? I was just trying to remember what that was. Yeah, I, I remember there Android was one PC. they were trying to get it. I think okay.
4: it was back on like a Pentium 200,
0: right? Smash the turbo button before you turned it on. Yeah. <laughs> like knows to what my the game, turbo so button is.
1: <laughs> I'm convinced some of the guys were all, like mining Bitcoin on the HPC resources. Like they would just have like a poll to see like when you know different nodes weren't being used. and would just kind of like slide them in there. You <laughs> know, like yeah, we'll, we'll just throw it in the boss never needs to know it'll be fine
0: right well we've talked about kafka aws amusement parks for fish and um <laughs> folding proteins for seti i think we've kind of covered all the topics did we miss anything all right nobody's jumping in so how about we do some pics
2: hey folks it's charles maxwood and i just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that i'm doing it's free it's Out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So, if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next, you know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then We'll just answer questions and it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have this situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I, I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. You guys ready?
0: Jonathan, you want to kick us off?
2: Sure. Why not? So I just I just
4: finished listening to a book that it's not technically, well, it, it is technical, but not an RTEC. tech. It's like biotechnical. So that's going to be my pick. It's called Lifespan. And it's by uh, David Sinclair, who uh, studies the science of aging. And it's an interesting topic. I actually found the the book on the YouTube channel Veritasium. So that's my second pick. Oh, yeah. Watch that. It's a great channel. It's about science. It makes science really easy for lay people. But the basic premise of the book is that our bodies, not just ours, but bodies of all animals, they have this natural aging process, of course, but that it's not inevitable and that, there's, that there are studies being done to help prevent and possibly even reverse the aging process perhaps the most interesting thing about the book is that it's it's not what i expected in the sense that it's not all this like voodoo oh my gosh we could live forever sort of thing you know the, the fountain of youth has been discovered it was not like that it is the guy who wrote it is truly a scientist and he uses a scientific scientist skepticism but at the same time, he's very optimistic about this. He predicts that one of his predictions was that somebody born this year will be alive in the year 2200. 20, no, that's no, right. 2300. 2300. Wow. I'm doing my math right? My math. I'm, I'm a computers guy, but my math is terrible, right?
0: Right. Jill and I just had this conversation on Twitter a couple of days ago. 2200.
4: 2200. So, in other words, this person may live to the age of 180. That's uh, based nuts. on the advances we're making. That is, you know, he doesn't say everybody. He doesn't even think a majority. He just thinks that somebody born this year is likely to be alive in 180 years. Now that's that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, cool if it's true. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, that's an awful yeah. long time. <laughs> he he uh, he makes some interesting points. Uh, I don't know if he's he's right about that. I know I don't. I'd be happy to live to 100. Hundred and twenty, maybe even if, if if I'm healthy during that time. And of course, that's the po- the point of the book. is It's not just about living longer; it's about living healthier, um, right. healthier lives. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, it's it's a fascinating read, especially if you're interested in health related topics or mm-hmm. biology, or you want to break from computer tech and you want some other kind of tech in your life for a little while.
0: <laughs> All right, Jillian, you got some picks for us.
1: I do. I also read a sciency book. I could not remember the title, so I had to look it up. But it's called uh, Lucy, the Beginnings of Humankind. And it's actually it's a bit of an older book, but it's the story of the archaeologist who initially went out and found the Lucy skeleton, which is kind of uh like was a really big deal in terms of evolution and bridging the gap. And all that kind of thing. It's just it's really, really interesting because it's uh, it's actually written by the scientist who is like out there going out and searching for fossils and all this kind of stuff. So it's a really cool read. It's fun. I really liked it. That one and the books by Jane Goodall are like my favorite scientists venturing off into the wild and just finding neat stuff books. And then I'm going to do some shameless self-promotion where I have I was doing so much fun with this that I started another podcast on data science with some other people that I know. It is called Data Science Deployed. It's been around for a couple of episodes. The production quality is maybe maybe quite a bit lower because we just live stream it and say, "There's like there's the podcast, you guys." Um, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So if you like data science, go listen to that.
0: Right on. That's it. Okay, Shimon, what do you got?
5: Actually, this week I've been really really busy. We worked on a we launched our company on Hacker News and we got on the front page. Nice. And, and nice. actually. As we started this show, like one minute before we started the show, we we got on the GitHub trending repos. So now everything's going haywire. I'm like trying to concentrate on the podcast, but you know, everything's going crazy. <laughs> yeah, so I've been super, super focused with, <laughs> with the company. So I'll take a generic pick and I'll say... If you're interested in entrepreneurship, go read the Y Combinator, you know, getting started guide, because this is what I did. So this will be my pick for today for young entrepreneurs. Right on.
0: Nice. And I mean, you can you can do like a freebie pick. The fact that y'all's repo is trending. That's just kind of a bonus.
5: Yeah, what's what wrong with you? Repo. Tell us what Tell the repo is. It. The repo is the tree, D A T R E E, the tree. Yeah, we passed 4,000 stars. Oh, so shit. we're really, really happy with it. Cool. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. It's, it's been crazy. going crazy. Okay. Yeah, it's, you know, it's very DevOps. We help prevent misconfigurations from reaching production in Kubernetes workloads. And we did it all, you know, self-service, open source. So. There are whole new challenges with open source. You know, you have your roadmap as a company, then someone submits a pull request. They're like, what are we supposed to do? We're going to leave the person hanging or we're going to change a roadmap that we told the investors that we're going <laughs> to do. It's like you're, <laughs> you're like in between this world. But, you know, it's an entrepreneur problems. But yeah, I'll take those problems Absolutely. any
0: day. All right. Abhinav, what have you got for us for picks?
3: So, yeah, there's a doctor called Dr. Rhonda Patrick. I follow her on Twitter and she has been, you know, uh, she shoots amazing case studies about uh, how, uh, I mean, based on what Jonathan just mentioned, right, about what things you can do to increase the longevity and the health of your life. She has been very active. Uh, She does a lot of research also, like, for example, in COVID, she has been mentioning how the role of vitamin D, uh, you know, plays in terms of the fatality of people. so how you can keep all of that. And I think she's very bullish on sauna and say, what are the various health effects uh, of, of doing that? So that's amazing. I, it's very interesting to follow her.
0: Right on. Nice. All right. So my pick, as I oh, as I hold the book up to the camera for a podcast, because I'm a moron, <laughs> the Linux programming interface by uh, Michael Karask. So... I mean, this book is huge. It is a beast, like 1,500 pages. So I'm not going to read it one into the other. But I did open it up and just find different chapters. i like, oh, I'm going to check that out. And it's been pretty fascinating because it's been a, an easy-to-read reminder of things that I knew decades ago that have long since forgotten. But reading them again and getting them, like, refreshing it in my mind is bringing a whole new perspective to how I'm approaching and solving problems and and troubleshooting and doing different things. So it's called the Linux programming interface. I have absolutely no ambition to uh, contribute or work on the Linux kernel, which was its primary audience, but it's such a well-written book on just how Linux operates. I highly recommend it. I think it's it's been great, and as much as you can say, so it's actually been a fun read because it's it's very well written and very easy to read. So that's my pick for the week. Can you
4: give an example of something it reminded you of that you, you've forgotten?
0: Yeah, like all the different things that are in the proc virtual file system. Okay, yeah, because yeah. like you know, there's there's some stuff in there that I would go look for regularly, like the the command line to see what arguments it was launched with. But then it has all of the different like network and um, and memory and CPU stats for each application in there as well. And then another one, oh yeah, just like the the boot sequence, you know, of like when the system boots up, the things how it how it bootstraps and goes through and when it activates different things in that process. It's like, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense now. Really
5: cool. I'll tell you, I love it, but I, I did it, and I did it several times, and every time I, I, I redo it, because you learn the same thing, new things, just install Linux from scratch, like not an Ubuntu, <laughs> like take a Gentoo, <laughs> yes. take an Arch Linux, compile a kernel, root into the files, go install, and and every time I do it, you learn so many things, and and. I love reading a book because you can look at it and and see, but then, you know, take a VM and just do the installation. It'll take you two days, but do do the installation and you learn a lot of things. For
0: sure. All right. Abhinav, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they do so?
3: Uh, The most common place is Twitter. I'm uh, available at A. Dasmana there. Yeah.
0: Right on. Cool. Well, I think we've got ourselves a podcast. Is there anything I'm supposed to do at the end? <laughs> yeah. Oh, good call. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and we look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs> thank
3: you very much for
0: having me. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, man. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for being on the show and uh,
2: I'll see y'all later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit dot com to learn more.